Hello, and welcome to Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires of New York Times and elsewhere. Hello. And we have an awesome show. We are going to talk about Disney and streaming and strikes and Bob Iger. And we are going to talk about student loans, which you're going to have to start paying back your student loans again. Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Should you have had to start paying them back much earlier? Did we wait too long? Um, We're going to talk about suspicious activity reports and banks just closing people's bank accounts out of the blue. We have a Slate Plus segment, which is turning into an Axios commissioning segment where we talk about candy-colored cruise ships. It's a fun one. So it's all coming up on Slate Money. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So let's start with how everything is going a little bit pear-shaped in the entertainment industry in general and at Disney in particular. Disney is a big producer of film and TV, and now it has not only all of the writers on strike, but also all of the actors on strike. And I'm going to come out here with a highly insightful insight here, which is that it's really hard to make film and TV if you don't have any writers or actors. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So that would seem to be a problem, but that's not the only problem that Disney has. Disney also has a problem that it's not, it's placed this massive bet on streaming, Disney Plus, which is losing money and Wall Street doesn't seem to like Disney losing money. Its share price is in the doldrums. It failed to get a bunch of really important cricket rights in India. Its massive new Pixar movie that came out a couple of weeks ago was seen by five people. And so it really needs a strong and dynamic CEO to turn it around. And so what they've done is they've re-upped the contract from the old CEO who was there years ago and said, we're just going to keep you on for two years. Is that a, is that a good summary, Elizabeth? Yeah, that's that's pretty good. So Bob Iger, who is seventy two, uh, his contract has been renewed until twenty twenty six, and the statements from Disney indicate that the board asked him to stay. But you know, Iger during his first tenure extended his stay three times. So the internal scuttlebutt is that he you know wants to stay, but he's been making a lot of noise 
indicating that he was not really prepared for the problems that Disney is facing right now, uh, many of which are not even about the streaming services failing, but their traditional lines of business being in trouble and this being a kind of secular problem in the industry. I'm trying to separate how much of Disney's problems are, in fact, Disney's problems or their industry-wide problems. Like, we know streaming is declined from its boom times. You know, we know TV is in trouble. Iger said this week that it's de- the po- TV is going away faster than they think, and he's trying to sell or he's considering selling uh, ABC and FX, I believe. So, yeah. So how much of this is a Disney issue that his predecessor, hand-picked predecessor, Bob Chapek, caused? Or how much of his is this Disney trying to adapt to this new world? And also, just to be clear here, like, either way he should have been able to see this coming, given that the main job of the Disney CEO is staying on top of what the industry is doing. And so if it's an industry-wide thing, then you need to be alert to that. And I think the the main thing that probably has changed, if he was surprised by anything, is what you just said, right? Which is the decline of old-fashioned broadcast TV on on over-the-air or cable. Um, The streaming strategy was always a cross-subsidy strategy where you take the massive profits from ABC and ESPN and places like that and you plow them into streaming so that when TV eventually inevitably dies, you have a big streaming franchise that can take over. And now those profits are much smaller. People are saying... You know, streaming needs to get profitable more quickly. But I don't think streaming is declining. I think streaming is still, you know, doing perfectly well by the standards of, you know, how it launched. It's it's not it's not worse than it used to be. It's just they used to be fine with losing money, and now they're not fine with losing money. Yeah, but yeah, I would say Iger's not pulling resources away from streaming. You know, when he came in, there was talk about. Disney's selling their stake in Hulu. They own 80% of it. Comcast owns 20% of it. And now they're talking about potentially buying the 20% stake off of Comcast. And the things that they're talking about selling are really the the more uh, traditional TV properties, you know, anything in linear TV in particular. So ABC, FX, and they're thinking of selling their stake in ESPN. They, don't they own 100% of ESPN? Uh, no, Hearst owns 20. Yeah, I thought he ruled out selling ESPN. Oh, well. in, in his interview at Sun Valley. I mean, I guess anything is possible. Like, Iger is a deal maker, and if he's presented with a deal, he will, you know, consider it. So, possibly. But, yeah, I mean, the irony, I mean, it's not the irony. Like, the big picture strategy of navigating the move from linear to streaming is still there, right? The If you look at what Hulu is... It's basically TV shows on streaming. It's the old, it's the standard bunch of TV shows that they have from owning T, from owning Fox and ABC and NBC, right? Which is which is part of the um, Hulu consortium, and then just putting them all together in one place and saying you can stream your favorite TV shows, as opposed to Disney Plus, which is much more movies based and much more sort of movie IP based. Yeah, Hulu does have original programming though that, that's just indigenous to Hulu. Sure, but it feels like TV programming. Like when, like when Hulu had Fleischman is in Trouble or whatever, that was indigenous to Hulu and, and um, Hulu was the only place you could watch it. But it was like an FX production that still 
it's a TV show. I agree with you. If you're a viewer, it definitely feels that way. I think the difference is in terms of how these things get produced and made, and that's where the you know the strike situation comes in, because a lot of the the writer strike uh, things that are at stake are really have to do with the differences between the way streaming shows get made and the way that they get made in you know more traditional TV studios. And this is an issue with the actor strike too, right? The thing that they seem to have in common is that while TV shows would pay out residuals or royalties to the writers and the actors every time they re-aired on TV, streamers don't work that way. It's not like it's not like streaming a song on Spotify where every time the so- song gets streamed on Spotify, the artist gets some fraction of a cent. Um, Instead, you get a massive, much bigger than normal check up front and then nothing going forwards. And the unions are not fans of that model. Yeah, there's a good piece in The New Yorker that begins with an anecdote um, from some actors from Orange is the New Black, which was like a huge hit for Netflix, talking about how their residuals amounted to cents, you know, like under a dollar, um, and how they had to keep their day job even though they were a big star on a big breakthrough streaming show. It just doesn't translate into the bottom line money. Yeah, there's one actress who said she actually lost money doing the show because she had to relocate to L.A. and wasn't paid yes. enough you know, up front. <laughs> and then there were no residuals that were meaningful. And that show was enormously successful. Right. That sort of like epitomizes the issue. My question about the strikes, because um, we talked about them recently, I think, but now that you know, there's now the actors and the writers are on strike. And there's this great deadline piece this week where studio executives said anonymously (laughs) that they're like trying to starve them out. They think by October, everyone's going to be running out of money and won't be able to keep their homes. Yeah, they said they they know (laughs) it'll be working when writers start losing their apartments and losing their houses, which is incredible. Um, uh, (laughs) And Iger didn't help this. He he said uh, at the Sun Valley conference, uh, something to the effect of, uh, the, the writers and the actors are all being unrealistic in their demands, you know. And it, well, right, and he just got what, like a thirty-three million dollar contract yes. or something with Disney. <laughs> um, but my question is, like, do the writers and actors actually have leverage in this moment? Because we live in a we don't live in network TV world. Like as Iger said this week, like it's dying even faster than we thought. Um, the movies aren't what they were. We all have access to streaming, and like. If no one made any more movies or TV shows for the next two years, I don't think people would run out of things to watch, if I'm being honest. Like, you can always go to the well. It's not the same. And Netflix, by the way, is the absolute expert at this, much more than the other streamers. But I think the other streamers can catch up and do it quite easily. Netflix has been expert at taking shows that originally came onto the platform five or six years ago and just like re-upping them and throwing them onto the mm-hmm. homepage of Netflix and saying, here's this amazing show, you should watch it. And everyone goes, ooh, that looks like an amazing show, and they watch it. And you're absolutely right. Just the sheer depth and quantity of stuff that is available to watch on demand on any of these streaming services is so great that in the short term, I think you're right, that most of them will be able to... Um, to just resurface stuff that people haven't watched yet. 
Um, possibly Apple TV is the exception, right? They, they seem to have the, the shallowest well, but I don't think anyone's worried about Apple right now. Yeah, who cares? Right, Apple. This isn't <laughs> existential for Apple. They happily go on and pocket their billions and billions and billions in profits. But t- talking of which, right, this is, this is the perennial storyline surrounding Iger, right, which is the, his, he's a deal maker by heart. He, his great triumphs were the M&A acquisitions of Marvel and Pixar. The, you know, the big question mark over his management is the enormous amount of money he spent on 20th Century Fox and all of the debt that came with and whether that is going to turn out to have been a smart deal or not. And the big question mark going forwards is, is his whole idea here as in his final tenure as Disney CEO that he's going to go out with a bang and sell Disney to Apple, which it's not clear that he totally wants to sell Disney to Apple. It's not clear that Apple particularly wants to buy Disney. Um, although it does have a little bit of that Steve Jobs DNA in Pixar. Um, but the problem here for, for Iger is the share price, right? That if he sells to Apple at say, a normal 20-30% premium to the current share price, that looks like a really low price and a fail for him, given that Disney stock is at a 10-year low right now. Mm, But it could go lower. (laughs) It can always go lower. No matter, what's that wonderful Joe Weisenthal song about no matter how far you fall, you can always go down another 100%. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, if TV really is dying, then... It probably has farther to go, right? Streaming is not as profitable, and I don't think anyone's figured out a way for it to be more profitable. Like we said, every um, viewing is atomized now. There's no energy behind this stuff. It and 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 this industry is the last industry to be like fully disrupted. I think I've said this before on the show, but like the media world we live in has been disrupted by technology, the music world fully disrupted by technology. And I feel like movies and TV, they're kind of like the last to go, but they Yeah, and go. I think you're seeing you're seeing that in the strikes, right? That the strikes really do seem to be like, we want to go back to the old world. We don't like the new world, stop the world I want to <laughs> yeah. get off, right? And And it's just, a lot of it is that they're like, can you please not use any AI. Well, like, AI is going to be ubiquitous, you know? Everyone is going to be using AI in everything. You can't just kind of say, we want to carve out a little bubble in Southern California where AI doesn't reach. It doesn't doesn't work that way. You're going to have to come up with some smart way to, you know, try and allow creatives to make better shows by using whatever the tools they have at their disposal. Well, I think the, the negotiations are a little more granular than that. I mean, we already use AI and CGI heavy production. So I, I think it's more about the context in which you're allowed to use AI. Do we want, if you if we're in a world of sort of lots of people acting on streamers and the, and the streamers are increasing demand for actors and writers, that's, that's clearly up and to the right. Do we want to be in a world where your pay is mostly a function of whether your whether the Netflix algorithm worked for you and your show became a hit, right? Like, like if you get a big paycheck from Netflix, what is the sort of intuition that says, well, 
if the show turned out to be really big for Netflix, then I should get paid more than they originally agreed to pay me. Isn't that how Hollywood has worked forever and ever? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's also what how residuals are. Shame a huge works. I mean, TV you know, that's exactly it, right? That's, yeah. that's right, exactly. That and the, the yeah, and the the argument for it is like this is how it has always worked, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, so what are you proposing, Felix? It, it's a very, it's a very, you know, it's a low, it's a small c conservative position, right? Which is this is how it's always worked in the past, so this is how it should continue to work in the future. The intuition, the reason is like, if you're a big hit, you should be paid more. That seems like true across across industries, right? If you're a big hit, you should get more money. Right, but the, against that is the is the standard sort of intuition that most shows are not big hits, and the way that the economics of the industry works is that you use the profits from the big hits to cross-subsidize everyone else. And so everyone mm-hmm. else eff- effectively can get paid more if they're allowed to be cross-subsidized. Yeah, to me it sounds more like the standard intuition that if you can exploit labor, you should. Uh, because part of what's happening is that, you know, the standards, the the old standards are getting, got worse for writers and actors in when streaming peaked. And for them, mm-hmm. they're doing exactly the same work. It's not less work. It's not, you know, less effort. It's just less pay. We should also note that, I mean, these two strikes together, it's not just actors and writers and Bob Iger and Disney shareholders. There's a whole ecosystem, a whole economy, you know, that's living off of the work of the writers and the actors, you know, um, that are now not going to be making, doing any work or making any money, unless I guess they do reality TV, Yeah, which I am assuming there's going to be a lot of. No, but you're right. The, the, the credits on any given movie or TV show are definitely not mostly actors and writers you know all of those people who are part of the industry are now also out of work and aren't negotiating for better pay or conditions and they're just gonna suffer even more i have a one maybe this is a left field point but there's one of the successors or potential successors for disney is the guy who runs the disney parks experiences and products which to me has like a little bit of a shades of succession thing where Tom gets advanced <laughs> from parks to running the whole shebang. And well, that was Chapek, right? Wasn't Chapek in charge of parks? Was he? I don't, I don't know. I think so, yeah. I think, yeah, I think Chapek came up from parks. Parks has been like the, the kind of the bright spot um, through the pan, like coming out of the pandemic, parks really outperformed is one of the reasons why Chapek got the job. And People still really love the experiences, and this is one of the great secrets of how Disney makes so much money. And it's like it's still a you know highly profitable company, or not making quite as much money as it used to. Um, it's because it can take IP from movies, turn it into parks and cruises. If I go and see a movie and spend fifteen dollars on my movie ticket, the amount of money that Disney makes on off of me is tiny compared to if I go to a theme park or take a cruise yeah yeah they do need to do some more better movies <laughs> i think that's a, a big problem for them <laughs> but that's yeah exactly just do better but how do you get better movies you you embrace your talent you embrace your writers and your actors and you you make them like yeah. you and, and the weird thing is that Iger was always known he had this reputation for being very talent friendly which is why it's interesting that he seems to be on the other foot right now Felix, i know the answer yeah. to this question i feel like but have you ever been to a disney park <laughs> what what okay what do you think the answer is no no <laughs> <laughs> the answer is 
The answer is I have been to both Disneyland and Disney World. <gasps> wow. What? Well, yeah. on purpose? What was the context? <laughs> That uh, maybe maybe we'll save that one for the slate list. <laughs> but yeah, let's have a break and come back and talk about student loans. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple, two percent on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and. 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Emily, what is the news on student loans? There's a lot of news on student loans, Felix. Um, A few weeks ago, the Supreme Court ruled that the Biden administration did not have the authority to forgive student loan debt. Um, Its big loan forgiveness plan got the kibosh from Justice John Roberts and his five conservative pals at the same time. The student loan payment pause that President Trump put in place during the pandemic, which has been going on for more than three years, which is wild. Um, millions and millions of people, I think like 42 million people, haven't paid student loan, haven't made a student loan payment for over three years. That pause is ending. The pause is lifting. It's weird to say the pause is unpausing. I don't know. Whatever. In September, interest will resume. In October, people will start paying again. Um, so I mean, I'm thinking a few thoughts about this and well, there's a few things. So for people who have to start paying again, this is like a big hit because everyone's moved on and adjusted their spending right to not having to make this monthly payment. Average payment say is like $200 a month. Some people actually, um, used use the the freed up cash to take on more debt like they bought houses and cars and and now have another payment to contend with um some people just you know use the money to get by and it's going to be a big hit to a lot of people to start having to pay again um so that's kind of interesting like what's that going to mean for the economy i'll give you two choices we could talk about that or the other thing i've been thinking of is cuz i wrote a little bit about student loans I don't, time has no meaning anymore. I think it was last week. Um, And I got so much email about it. And I've been reading kind of like the, like Republicans really hate, you know, loan forgiveness. And, um, but a lot of, I think Democrats too, there's this like notion of, there's like this morality to having to pay back. And it's not fair that people should have their loans forgiven. And like, I didn't have my loans forgiven. So you shouldn't have your loans forgiven. And it's just like, this is wrong and immoral and horrible. And I don't, I don't really understand that because in other areas of lending and finance, it's not like that. It's heavily generational. Like it just in polling, you know, the, the people who object to student loan forgiveness skew a lot older. And I think there's a, a kind of rational, but uh, unfortunate reason for that, and it's that 
um, later loan cohorts are more likely to have their loans, um, the, the total amount that they owe now is higher than what the principal was that they originally bought, borrowed. And I think that sort of crossover happened around the 2013 loan cohort. And so if you're younger, you have more experience of people you know uh, take out student loans, expecting that they could pay it back, and, and not necessarily because they were delusional, but not anticipating the things that would lead you to have to, for instance, defer payments or go into forbearance, and your interest still accumulates during that period. So what happens is mm -hmm. even with income-based repayment systems, you can end up in a situation where your monthly payment is you know, sustainable for you on a cash flow basis, but you're still not really paying the loan down. And I think that really wasn't the case, you know, in, in 40, 50 years ago, if you were taking out available loans. Like, they, they were completely, mm -hmm. you were able to repay them. And there was a good piece in the Times this week, it was an op-ed about um, the fact that the loan, the, the pandemic era uh, stoppage on loan payments made it actually easier for a lot of people to actually get their loans paid off long term, just because that little break in having interest accumulate is so critical mm -hmm. for people who are least likely to be able to pay their loans back. Hmm. In terms of the income-based repayment plans, though, didn't the Biden administration just announce that like, there mm -hmm. was a $39 billion forgiveness of people who were doing exactly that? They were making their um, interest payments on time. And then if you make your interest payments on time for long enough, then eventually at the end of it, you get the principal um, forgiven, and that just happened. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, separate. It's good. Mm -hmm. I think it's it's very narrow though in terms of who's actually eligible. Yeah, that's separate from the bigger plan and affects fewer people. But separate from that bigger plan, um, the Biden administration is reforming the income-driven loan plans. Um, they're they're like updating it and making it so yeah, a lot of people are getting their loans forgiven or they're going to see their payments capped. So the the unpause for some people won't be as bad as it could have been because of that. And the administration has said they're going to try and do their big loan forgiveness plan another way, but it'll be more complicated. It'll take longer. You know how these things go. Um, so I wouldn't like hold out hope for that. So so Emily, are you a plan of loan forgiveness, and you're sad that it didn't happen? Yeah. So I've been thinking about that. I mean. I feel like loan, like loan forgiveness is not addressing probably the root cause of why people have so much student loan debt and why it's a problem. Like there's probably there's those are the symptoms of just like a broken system of how America pays for college. So on the one hand, it's like, well, this isn't going to fix anything. <laughs> on the other hand, like the the loan payment pause went on for three three years, and like the world moved on and changed. And it kind of makes sense to me, actually, to forgive some money that people owe just because because of that that overly long pause. You can't expect people to just go back to the way it was. Like, you have to do so, so something. Wait, so, let, to, to, to be clear about the argument here, you're basically <laughs> saying we were too generous on the interest, therefore we now need to be generous on the principal. Yeah, yeah, I really think so. I think I think it's been too long. You can't expect people like if you're like if you're giving away the internet for free for 10 years and on your website, you can't just slam the paywall down. You have to do something 
a little more gentle. And I mean, this isn't about paywalls. This is serious. This is people's this is people's lives. You know, they've gone on and done other things. Was there a point at which we should have re, you know, basically ended the student loan payment pause like much earlier so it didn't become just a fact of life you know clearly we're not in a pandemic emergency right now but this was a Mm -hmm. pandemic emergency program like did the pandemic emergency end at the end of 2020 and it should have been unpaused at the end of 2020 i mean i think i don't know when it should have been unpaused but i think it should have been unpaused a lot sooner than it was. I think three plus years is like pretty wild. That's not a pause. That's like a stop. <laughs> I mean, it, it, you know, you just, you, 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 you have to go on with your life and figure out other things to do with your money. I, I doubt anyone was just diligently putting aside their student loan cash, you know, into like a separate savings account, just in case the day arrived that they would have to start paying again. Um, yeah, it should have, it should have, a, a lot of other pandemic supports stopped long before the student loan pause stopped. It's kind of odd, right? Like the checks, the the child tax credit, like Medicaid support. I mean, so many other things. It's sort of like interesting that this is the one that lasted the longest. It tells you a lot about the constituency, right? Yeah, well, the constituency of people who are struggling with that are people who really likely are never going to be able to pay their loans back in in the absence Mm -hmm. of forgiveness. And, you know, there's a lot of moralizing around it because the I think the conventional wisdom is that if people aren't able to pay their student loans, that it's a function of irresponsible behavior. But if mm-hmm. you look at when student loans really started ballooning, it was a function of a policy choice, which is that we started gutting public education. And, you know, the, the less public universities were funded by federal subsidies, the more potential students had to take out loans in order to afford education. And, you know, the, the fact that a lot of the loans that people take out aren't even, you know, government loans, they, they will backstop uh, gaps with private loans um, that, mm-hmm. that are even more problematic. So Emily is saying that the student loans should not have been paused for three years. Put aside the question of the, um, the principal amount, just the amount that people are paying every month should not have been zero for three years because that builds this kind of feeling of permanence there. Um, do you agree or disagree with Emily on that one? I think I, I disagree with that. I mean, you know, people stopped also getting pandemic payments and there wasn't a giant backlash to that. I mean, I, I think uh, when we think about loss aversion and what people react badly to, I, I don't think that extending it for as long as we did really had a, a big effect except for people who were really struggling to pay the loans in the first place. So the question is, who does the end policy really benefit? And did those people need assistance for longer than some of the other government programs that provided assistance to people who were struggling or just, you know, people generally? Right. It was it, it was universal, right? It, it was not in any way targeted at people who were struggling. No, but it, it, by, by definition, the people who would have trouble making those payments are the ones who are most af- affected. Do we have a feel for, like, the percentage of student loan borrowers who are in that struggling bucket? Because it does feel like a kind of inefficient way of helping out struggling borrowers is to help out all borrowers just for the sake of helping out the struggling ones. 
I don't have that percentage off the top of my uh, head, but it's a significant number of borrowers that are going to be in forbearance, I think, um, coming out of the pause. So that works, right? They, they go out of one type of forbearance and they go into another type of forbearance? Yeah, and the Biden administration, I think, is making it a, a gentle a gentle um, transition for, for those who can't pay. Like they're not going to report missed payments to the credit agencies for a year or something like that to make it a little more gentle, the reentry. Yeah, I mean, again, the biggest mm. element is if you go into forbearance and you're still accumulating interest, that's that's the real problem. It's not the monthly payments. So if the Biden administration's rule is, is applied very broadly, that that's a huge change for people who are struggling with payments. What I was going to note is that their, um, the Biden cancellation plan uh, did favor people who are struggling because <laughs> it gave the $20,000 relief to um, Pell Grant recipients. And I think they'd done some, they put out some numbers saying that um, lower income people, well, there was a cap on who could get their loan f- forgiven, I think $125,000 income cap or something like that. So the people who are going to see their loans forgiven were lower income uh, borrowers. So, you know, that's something not universal. And people hated it. <laughs> not coincidentally, I, think, I, I think would argue. I think Elizabeth is correct that the attitudes are largely generational. And I do wonder whether part of it is that the um, socioeconomic makeup of undergrads has become broader over time. The, going to college used to be more of an elite thing and therefore forgiving loans would be forgiving the debts of the elite versus now it's a much broader thing and you have a much higher proportion of the population going to college and therefore forgiving loans affects a more, you know, a, a larger chunk of the, you know, relatively poor parts of society. I think that's a big part of it. I also think that uh, people in older generations don't necessarily fully understand how much more expensive higher ed is now, uh, all in. So even, you know, let's say you graduated from Harvard in the 1970s. You know, those people were paying a totally different amount of money, you know, in, in terms of total cost. Well, if you, if you, well, Harvard's a bad example because, you know, Harvard is free if your parents make less than $150,000 a year. Well, that's fair. But, you know, for, if you're paying retail price, the, the cost of college has just gone up astronomically. I kind of don't believe it's generational. I mean, I don't have I don't have great evidence, okay? So this is just my mm-hmm. gut. But I don't think it's generational. I think people have a strong moral sense about individuals' responsibility to pay back their loans. Like we saw it in the Great Recession with mortgages, and we see it with the student loans also. And I think, I don't know, there's something deep to it. No, you're yeah, right about it. This is the genesis of the Tea Party, right? The, the Rick Santelli's yes. rant on CNBC when there was a trial balloon floated by the Obama administration saying that homeowners might get debt relief on their mortgages he was like how dare you provide debt relief to their mortgages and um (laughs) and that was how the tea party started the tea party then became something very different but there is this um you're absolutely right there is a um very kind of german feeling about debt that i see in um in a large chunk of 
that kind of side of the American discourse. You know how yeah. how in um, in Germany debt is called Schuld, which is basically the same as like shame or guilt. Um, oh my you know that like a debt is something that you you take on, and it's a moral responsible moral responsibility to take to to pay back. And obviously, in the world of you know private equity and commercial real estate and stuff like that, it's just a financial engineering thing. But on a personal level, it really is considered a a, a deep moral personal obligation well, to pay back everything. In, that you've in the U.S., though, yeah. we, we also you know we demonize poverty a lot. We we create it we, or we talk about it as if it's a character flaw. Uh, and, and the underlying yeah. assumption is that if you're in debt, that you did something wrong. And, and you know, for people who really in crushing I, I don't even of debt, I don't even think that mm-hmm. I don't even think that's that's the assumption. Again, and I think you know, America is kind of more German than it thinks about this. Like Germans don't consider debt to be a character flaw. It's not like you're a bad person if you have debt, but it is something that you have to you have like a moral obligation to pay off that you've taken mm-hmm. this on yourself and you need to get yourself out of it. And, and that it is not in any way the job of the state to come in and rescue you from decisions that you personally yeah, make. Yeah. But you're, you're speaking to, to my argument with that, you know, the, the big negative reaction that I see to student loans is people saying like, well, if you couldn't pay that loan back. Why did you take it out in the first place? Which completely mm-hmm. ignores the fact that, you know, a big part of the you know American promise of making it is contingent upon doing things that enable class mobility for lower income people. And education is still one of the biggest sources of class mobility. So we tell sure. people, and leverage sure. is like, yeah. it'll help, you'll get a better paying job. And then when the better paying job yeah, doesn't materialize, think, it's, you know, it's their fault. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I just don't, I don't see... I guess I don't see the same amount of like blaming of the 18-year-old self for taking out the loan. I don't see I, I see less of that. I see blaming the, you know, current 27-year-old for not taking on the obligations of the 18-year-old. But like I don't see a lot of people going, you know, in the student loan um discourse you know, pointing fingers at 17 and 18-year-olds who are taking out loans to go to school and saying, like, you should not be doing that, you should not be taking on that debt because you're not able to pay it back. I see the finger pointing very much at the older graduates and saying, like, now that you've made that decision, you should pay it back. Yeah, that's not what I see. I mean, whenever I've talked about this on Twitter, written about it, because I was a, you know, my parents didn't go to college. I took out a lot of student loans to go to Duke. And you know, I get that. I, I've had, I've been able to pay my stuff on time. But if I say that I'm fine with forgiveness for other people, the overwhelming reaction I get is, well, you shouldn't have gone to such an expensive school or you shouldn't have taken out those loans. And this is for undergrad. This is something that I, I decided to do when I was 17. So, you know, somebody who who is one of those examples, I get that all the time. Like, I, I think maybe... Um, if if you're not talking about it in a way that is about maybe your personal situation, you, you get a different reaction because it's much more abstract. So the only other thing I would want to add to student loans is that it will be interesting to see if there is an impact on the economy because a lot of people are going to spend less money starting in October 
right? And that could make a big difference at a time when things are already kind of cooling off. So I'm curious about that. Yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I I got people threatening me, I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, What's up next, Emily? Banks are just like closing people's bank accounts without warning and freaking them out and making their lives a little topsy-turvy, right? And Elizabeth, you think, you, think, you think this is a bad thing and they shouldn't do that? Well, yes and no. Like, I think what's, what's happening is that banks have always done this to some extent. You know, that whenever you sign onto a bank account, there's usually something in the fine print that says, we can close your account for any reason at all, and we don't necessarily have to explain to you why. And what's happened is that there's been an uptick in accounts that have been closed because of suspicious activity, so when you see accounts being closed, and, and you know, I think a lot of people assume that if they're being closed, it's because, I don't know, like you're, you're falling below on balances or you've overdrafted a million times or whatever. But the real horror stories uh, that are coming out now are really about people who say they, they have one bank, which is not uncommon, and their account gets closed and no one can explain to them why the account's been closed, and then they have trouble accessing their funds, which if you're only using one bank, it may make it difficult for you to pay your mortgage or eat or, you know, all those things. So, right. uh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, th- it, is, it is, you're absolutely right. It's based around this thing called suspicious activity reports. And, again, we don't know for sure. There does see, We do seem to know for sure that there is an increase in account closures if you look at the time series of complaints to the CFPB. Um, we don't know for sure that the increase in account closures is an increase in account closures based on suspicious activity reports, but I think it's fair to assume that. Um, one of the reasons why that looks like it's the case is precisely that almost none of the people seeing their accounts closed are given any explanation. Um if it's not because of suspicious activity, then the bank is invariably perfectly happy to say, like, we're closing your account because of ABC. If it is because of suspicious activity, that by law they're not allowed to tell you. Well, why they're they not. They're it. actually not allowed to so, tell you, yeah. even if they just reported it. And one of the stat, there was a Times piece about this this week. One of the stats was that only four percent of suspicious activity reports end up 
actually having suspicious activity. So overwhelmingly, if your account well, gets that's, reported, that's not that's yeah, that's not actually the stat. Only four percent of suspicious activity reports end up with some kind of criminal prosecution, right? But it is very it is very reasonable to assume that more than that have genuinely suspicious activity and either the law either law enforcement didn't investigate or, you know the other 96 percent, or they did investigate and didn't conclude that they had a you know slam dunk case that they could win but if you look at the number of suspicious activity reports which is you know tens of millions then there's law enforcement simply doesn't have the wherewithal to investigate the vast majority of them so the fact that most of them don't go prosecuted isn't really a sign that there was nothing well, wrong. Well, no, there. but they're, they're, the overwhelming reasons why these things get reported end up being fine. You know, there, there, uh, there was a case in this story of a guy who, you know, was here uh, from Pakistan, and he was transferring money in the way that people just do, or you have to if you're an expat and you don't have you've one bank here. Um, there are also cases of people transferring for good reasons a little under 10, 10k uh, which is the threshold at which banks have to report to the IRS and then that's reported as suspicious activity just because of the amount and no, it's, it's a function the threshold of, they need to report to the to the SAR to be clear not the okay. IRS uh, but you know the point being that these things are not inherently suspicious or bad it's just that because so much of this is monitored by algorithm now uh, people who aren't doing anything wrong get caught in the crosshairs. Yeah, that was my question. Is the increase we're seeing because there's more suspicious activity? Or is the increase we're seeing because banks' tech and algorithms have gotten, I don't know, better is the right word, better, more sophisticated? They're catching more, you know, the net's gotten wider and more people are getting stuck in it kind of a thing. Is that what's happening? So so just to, to like place a little bit of context here, as I say, there are tens of millions of these Suspicious activity reports. Every single bank files thousands and thousands of suspicious activity reports every day. It's like, for one thing, it's any transaction over ten thousand dollars. It automatically generates one of these reports. You know, okay. and as Elizabeth says, a bunch of transactions under ten thousand dollars get reported as well. Right? There is just because your account is generating SARs does not mean it is going to get closed. I can almost mm -hmm. guarantee you that at some point in time, all three of us have had accounts that have generated SARs, right? And we have not had accounts closed. So it's, so the question isn't like, are the, you know, there's nothing automatic about if you generate SARs, then your account gets closed. But in general, if the number of SARs goes up, then the amount of account closures goes up, right? That mm -hmm. there's, you know, there's some percentage of those SARs that ends up like the bank kind of looks at your account and goes, we're generating a lot of SARs. We're not quite sure where this money is coming from. And we're going to end up closing your account. And I do think that one of the things that we've seen in the past 15 years or so is a huge regulatory crackdown on banks of regulators saying, you had an obligation to do this and you didn't do this, so we're going to fine you $10 billion. 
And we've seen this for like every single major bank. There's always a fine from the SEC or the FTC or the CFPB or the Department of Justice or something, you know, and they're like, you had an obligation, you had a compliance obligation, and you failed at that obligation. And so we're going to give you a massive great fine. And so the compliance departments of banks have been getting bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more scared of like a potential massive fine down the world. So they're becoming more assiduous in getting ahead of any complaints that the government might have about like, you didn't do what you were supposed to do in terms of things like catching suspicious activity. And so I think in that sense, you know, it doesn't cost them and it doesn't cost them very much to just close down an account. They're like, okay, this can be someone else's problem. And we're no longer liable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, the combination, and so that's why they're filing more of these reports. And it's also why they're closing down more accounts. And it's also why they're not telling people why they're closing down the accounts because under law, they're not allowed to. Dang. So the advice and the from this piece in the Times, it was a friend of the pod, Ron Lieber and Tara Siegel Bernard, maybe, who wrote it, um, was not to put all your eggs in one bank account, like to have a diverse, uh, maybe you have a credit card with one place and um, a bank account with another, just diversify in case this could yeah, happen or, to you. Or, it, or more to the point, just have a spare bank account with like $2 in it. You know, it's actually very easy to set up a bank account with a few taps on a phone. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't actually need to use it, right? There's a bunch of online banks now that have no monthly fees and you can just keep a very small amount of money in the account and just have it there in case of emergency. And then at least you have a bank account sitting ready, waiting, waiting yeah. for you and you can transfer your money into it if you have any trouble with bank one. like It's yes. not like you need to be actively banking with multiple institutions. You just kind of need to have some kind of a financial relationship with another institution. Like We saw this um, during the SVB bank run, right? Everyone uh, logged into their SVB bank account and transferred all of their money out to some other account that they had, right? Yeah. And all of these people had, it's not like, it's not necessarily like they were using that other account. But they were just like, oh, I'm happy that I have that other account right now because now I have somewhere to transfer my money to. Right. But if you're like not a person with money, having two bank accounts is kind of, it's scary because I've been that person. When you don't have a lot of money and you have a bank account, you're always getting screwed, right? You're always going below zero. You're always getting hit with fees. Right, but that's, that's why that's because my one experience with it. bank closure was like the key bank being like, you know what, lady, like you have no money. This is yeah, if you, if you. you do if you do do this if you do try and follow the the Ron Lieber advice and open up another bank account, make sure it has like ten bucks in it, and f- please, for the love of God, make sure it doesn't have any kind of monthly fees or any kind yeah, of fees. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm so saying. That, you know, yeah, so that so that like it's just going to stick. That those ten dollars are just going to sit there in perpetuity, and then eventually, if you ever need it, it'll be there. Yes. Do that. But the other thing, I mean, the other thing that's, that's worth mentioning is that even though not everyone has another bank account, a huge proportion of the population does have a Venmo or a Cash App account or a PayPal account. Like, and those are to all intents and purposes bank accounts, right? You can you can have your paycheck paid into them. You can, mm-hmm. you know, get a, a debit card associated with them. Like in case of emergency, you know, if you if you do get a notice from your bank saying we're closing down your bank, you need to move all of your money out, you can actually also move your that money into your Venmo account or into your, 
you know, Cash App account. And that's like another option now that didn't used to exist. Oh, and that's the other thing um, from reading the piece. It's like the bank doesn't close it out of nowhere. They they do send a letter. So you have to like In check your mail. In the snail mail, yeah. It's but, important but, to check your mail, people. Yeah, but if they sent an email, <laughs> would you get that? I, I, no. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> they ha, ha, it's an interesting question. How is the bank meant to contact you? And and yeah, they all have these secure messaging systems in the app, which uh-huh. are impossible Ooh, to find. No, so if they tried bad. using that, that wouldn't work. Like, really, they just need someone to come up and, like, knock on your door and say, hey. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Because if they call or text, I'll be like, this is spam. They're just phishing. And I'll just not, (laughs) I'll screen it or I won't believe them. I think they they do text whenever it behooves them. You know, when I get fraud alerts from Citibank, it always comes text first. And I would think I'm much more likely to see a text than I will ever be to see any piece of snail mail. Yeah, or an email. That's now a problem. I miss emails all the time. But you should email us <laughs> at slatemoney at slate.com. Slatemoney at slate.com. Um, I love that. Emily, you should be a podcast host. <laughs> or you can just text Emily. Something to think about. <laughs> or just, or just text Emily, yeah. <laughs> Guys, we should have a numbers round talking about numbers. Um, Emily, do you have a number? My number is... $106.67. We are talking on Friday, and that is the stock price of Coinbase. You guys, have you seen what's happened to Coinbase's stock? Like, we had a and whole that episode. That seems high. Where, it's so high. It went That's up 25 Yeah, it went up 25% on Thursday this week. Is this 25%. because of the Ripple case? Yes. Yes, Felix, it is. There was a case of Ripple, and I'm sure you'll interrupt me to explain this better than me, but (laughs) there's a crypto company called uh, Ripple, and they were facing charges or are facing charges from the SEC that one of their tokens is a security. And this is like the core issue right now in crypto. Everything's being considered a security by the SEC, and it's like this existential crisis. But Ripple actually won this case partially. Um, and that just set off like an exuberance chain in the crypto world, which spread to the Coinbase stock price, which soared 25% in one day. But it had already been soaring for other reasons um, that I don't need to really talk about involving BlackRock and a spot ETF oh, the bloody e- thing. Yeah. So Sorry. My, my take on all of Ooh. this, for what it's worth, is that it, all of it is pretty much a nothing burger. The ETFs are not going to happen. The the case about whether XRP is a security is mm-hmm. ultimately a, a sideshow. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, they kind of it's a very interesting question about whether it's Ripple's token. It's it's a token oh, that dear. is kind of related to Ripple. Anyway, the the fact <laughs> is there are already two tokens that are not very clearly not securities as determined by the SEC, um, mm-hmm. Bitcoin and Ethereum, and yes. if there's like five tokens that are not securities or 10 tokens that are not securities. It doesn't change the great order of things, which is the SEC basically thinks that 99% of tokens are securities. But you're right. This has caused some euphoria in crypto world. Strangely, because crypto world is so <laughs> unlike it's so unlike them to get really, really euphoric about nothing they in particular. Pumped. Well, They're I pumped. mean, and the, the Coinbase and now, stock, yeah. I mean, it's doubled from a month ago. Like, that is wild to me. Like, we had a whole episode where we're like, is crypto dead? Is it over? Da da da. And it's just like, no, it's 
still buoyantly bouncing along. Well, no, it's a, it, Coinbase Growing is high. a meme stock, you know? Don't, is don't, it? Don't, I don't, don't think read so. Too much the only... in, don't read too much into the share price. Isn't it the only place to really trade this stuff now? Like, it's where it's like the le- it's the last man standing it is, kind of It thing? is true. If you want to be trading crypto, where else are you going to do it? Where else are you going to go? So Where else are you going to do it? The last man standing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, my number is 14 billion, which is the number of dollars of value that arguably were created by Wachtell, the grand law firm, um, after it got hired by Twitter. Um, this is in the news right now because Elon Musk is suing Wachtell for $90 million because Wachtell charged Twitter. $90 million for its legal advice during the big fight between Twitter and Elon Musk when Elon wanted to get out of buying Twitter and Twitter was like, no, you can't get out of buying Twitter because you signed a binding agreement to buy us, so you have to buy us. Um, and so I did the math. I went back to um, look at the Twitter share price on the day before um, Wachtell was retained by Twitter and it was Basically, it was $14 billion underneath the amount that Elon had agreed to pay. And then Walkdale comes in, and they're like, you have to pay the full amount. And so he wound up paying, you know, $44 billion. And that meant that the value of Twitter went up by $14 billion. And for me, you know, I do think that $90 million is a very, very large amount of money to pay for legal advice. But on the other hand, if you think about it in terms of $90 million spent for a $14 billion benefit, it kind of is 0.6%. I, I tried to, I didn't pay attention to any of that because I was just like up to my limit in Elon Musk shenanigans. But so he's suing the law firm for the, to get his money back for their advice. Like who does that? Also, Why is he doing that? It's not a thing that people well, normally care yeah, about cause, in cause this he, situation because it's kind of built into the transaction cost. Like it's not, it's, it's just absurdity. Basically, uh, like Matt Levine had a good co- column on this. Twitter didn't care how much it paid because Twitter's shareholders were getting 54, 20, whatever. And the person paying the bill was ultimately going to be Elon Musk. But Elon Musk was, you know, the, he was on the losing side of this, right? He's paying $90 million to Wachtell for losing that lawsuit. Okay. Because he wanted okay. to get out of it. And you can feel like he feel you can imagine that he feels a bit butthurt that he like has to pay $90 million to someone for being on the wrong side of that case. So he's suing them because he lost? He's suing them. Yeah, he's suing them because he lost, basically. And he had to pay Who that bill. Who does that? Has anyone done that before? All of his major corporate (laughs) decisions with regard to Twitter have been about him being butthurt about something. (laughs) So, so Elizabeth, before we have your number, we do need to ask you, did you see the shirtless suck pic and (laughs) how, just how like hot is Mark Zuckerberg right now? Uh, negative four. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but I'm not going to force negative four to be your number. What is your actual number? Uh, my actual number is 82, and that's the number of gallons of water a day the average American uses. 
So this is back to a story about how water bills have gone up tremendously in the last decade. So the average mm-hmm. water bill now is $49, and in 2012 it was $32. And approximately 30% of that for the average person is just outdoor watering, people watering their lawns. And now I think... And has that gone up? I'm not sure if the, the percentage of outdoor watering has gone up, but the, the thing that's making well, has, the water the prices amount, go up... Has the amount of... Has the amount of water being spent on outdoor watering gone up? Um, I'm not sure, but if you're looking for places to cut your water bill, that's that's a big thing, you know, that and changing out fixtures uh, to to use less. Water. Sure, I, I guess I guess my question is like, if the water has the water bill gone up because the water usage has gone up, or has the water bill gone up just because the price per gallon has gone up? So, in, in as much as climate change has cause people to have to deal with droughts and, you know, higher temperatures, then that correlates with higher outdoor water usage. But the other reason why prices are going up is because we have outdated infrastructure and it's just costing more generally and inflation is a factor too. So it costs more to get the water to the people. If you, if you want to see like a true dystopian nightmare, well, I mean, it's interesting there are two big, crazy, dystopian water stories right now, and neither of them are in the United States. You know, this is like what we're talking. What Elizabeth is talking about is water bills going up from thirty dollars to fifty dollars, which is you know a big rise, but it's still a twenty dollar rise. Look at what's happening in Montevideo right now, and they just don't have any water. Like they got this unexpected drought, and there is no water in the city I mean, of Montevideo. There is no water. There is they no water. water. They have run. But- they have run out of water. It but is, they, it is but how are they terrifying. getting water? They are they going be. to the supermarket and they are buying bottles of water in the supermarket. So that there's no water coming out of water. their taps there, or anything? There is a little bit of water coming out of the taps, but it is very brown and very smelly. Oh, my God. That's awful. Um, like we, we, we went through this with Cape Town a couple of years ago. Now it's Montevideo. Um, and then look at London or the UK generally. The... UK government privatized all of the water companies like 15 years ago, and that went about as well as you would have expected. And they, what they did is they dividended out billions and billions of dollars in um, dividends while paying for those dividends by raising billions and billions of dollars in debt. So now all of these water companies have massive debts and they can't um, afford to make all of the... Um, investments in improving the pipes and the water supply and the bills are through the roof and no one knows what to do about it. So yeah, the water situation is, you know, part of how global warming is going to make the whole world go to hell. And if you want to see just how bad it can get, look at either the UK or Uruguay. On that note... (laughs) On which note, <laughs> on which note, I think we water. will wrap this up. I think, yeah, go go take a long drink of water, as both Emily and Elizabeth are doing right now, <laughs> and stay hydrated. Don't water your lawn, for Christ's sake. Just replace it with some succulents or something. But um, do drink a lot and keep us posted on everything you're thinking about on Slate Money at Slate.com. And thank Patrick Fort for producing the show because he's great. And we will be back next week with more Slate Money.